0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 378 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another edition of our Location of the Writer series, Mary Colson defends the honour of much-derided Milton Keynes and explains why, for her, it's an inspiring environment. Then, Martin Day introduces the landscape around Yeovil and explores how childhood vistas underpin our mental landscapes and writing. Finally, Penny Boxall introduces us to Shandy Hall, the intriguing home of Lawrence Stern on the North York Moors. First, here's Mary Colson on Milton Keynes.
1: There is a place less than an hour north of London about which a great deal of urban myth and cultural commentary is written. It is a much maligned location, one which quickly evokes disparaging sneers. Perhaps because despite it having a population of well over a quarter of a million, somehow no one expects anyone to actually be from here. It's almost as if to live or come from here, you must lack imagination or intelligence or somehow be wanting in taste. Civic pride seems to be externally disallowed and yet despite all this, or perhaps because of all this, it is the location which inspires me to write. I speak, of course, about Milton Keynes. I grew up about 10 miles away from the town's bland, rigid, sterile and totally boring landscape, according to the president of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Happily, bland, rigid and sterile give me a broad canvas that can evoke the expansiveness of science fiction, the intimacy of horror Or the claustrophobia of dystopia, sometimes all at once. Stories of teenage disillusion, adult disenfranchisement, and old age invisibility all sit naturally within this oh so showy milieu. Far from being an anodyne modernist blank, its celebrated constituent parts of dual carriageways, roundabouts, oh so neat housing estates, mirrored glass, and concrete cows inspire, in my mind, satire and subversion. The architectural vernacular of Milton Keynes goes from Buddhist pagodas to New Age light pyramids. High order to high camp. It's Aristotelian light for artifice imitates life here. The scene is set. Despite having not lived there for 30 years, I continually sense it creeping into other stories and characters too. I can see teenage Donna blagging a fag at the back of the market. I can hear Reggie playing his harmonica sitting outside McDonald's. And I can feel the pinches and kicks of jam and jelly in the Dagnall Road lot as they duff up milk-white Antony in the underpass. You can take the girl out of M.K., but you can't take M.K. out of the girl. It is, of course, a town where presentation is all, where facades are shiny and overclean, but where they're just a stone's throw away from crushing poverty. This led me, some years ago, to write a script about two homeless men finding the Holy Grail here. Incongruous? Not so. You might not have previously considered Milton Keynes and Stonehenge as cultural bedfellows, yet in celebration of all incongruity, this most new of towns has paganism running right through its core. The original plan called for the streets to be arranged in a neat grid pattern, aligned along north-south and east-west axes, but it was actually built at a slight offset. The lead architect realised that shifting the city plan a few degrees would allow the streets to align with the sunrise on the summer solstice. Sure enough, until relatively recently, when a shopping centre, what else, obstructed the view, if you were to go to Milton Keynes on the longest day of the year, you'd see the sun rising at the east end of the town's Midsummer Boulevard, and shine down its length to reflect off the windows of the railway station at the far end. Given all this, how could I not write a script about a pair of dreamers and drifters, Graham and Clive, following a blinding light through the gleaming shopping centre, past the town's neon-lit landmarks and finding the Cup of Christ amidst its straight lines and ley lines? Those of us from there have evolved something of the outlaw mentality – so, it shouldn't be surprising that my first screenplay and the start of my professional writing life was a comedy western set in this carefully curated, near peopleless landscape. In the western outback, there are few eyes to enforce the law. This is also true of a town where housing estates are largely hidden from road view by high earth banks and some 22 million trees. Making the audience care is key in a genre where the whole world is at stake. But could I make people care about Milton Keynes? Could I make them root for the kitchen imposter in the heretofore green farmlands of Middle England? Well, I could if I made them care about the laconic hero and journey with him as he negotiated that world. Throw in other beloved Western tropes, such as cowboys and Indians, trusty steeds, beautiful women with tragic pasts, revenge narratives, a sheriff, shootouts, and ultimately a sense of order regained, and I quickly realised that Milton Keynes was the only place the story could be set. It is both outlier and outlaw, most wanted and least desired. The comedy wrote itself. I began my script as follows. Fade in on a panorama of an urban wilderness at dawn. A late spring landscape of trees about to bud. Anonymous buildings. Dirty concrete. Mirrored glass. Faded paint. A grid of roads crisscrosses the land. Close up on an abandoned supermarket trolley with a flyer for a parade on Saturday. It flutters like a trapped butterfly. Crows circle overhead. A siren gets louder until, through binoculars, we look down on an ambulance, lights flashing, speeding past a huge billboard with a permatanned, big-toothed, 50-something man. He's in cowboy gear and lassoing the concrete cows. It reads, Welcome to Kelman country. Vote Mick Kelman. Cut to the interior of an ambulance. Rob Webster, late 40s, out of shape lies on a stretcher, a bandage around his thinning head. Holding his crotch, his face is contorted in silent pain. He looks in wide-eyed terror at an enormous syringe a paramedic is wielding. And from this beginning, we have our world. Everything plays out from here. Westerns are redemption tales, always or the world is permanently changed, and that can't be. By fade-out, the hero's world must be restored, either to what it was, or to what it should always have been. Western heroes aren't straightforward archetypes, and rarely embody a stock moral purity. Instead, they might be best described as more sinned against than sinning. So too, I say, with Milton Keynes, a town perhaps seeking its own redemption. Setting my story here might be considered archly ironic, but that's just the point. By the time the credits roll, I'm saying that the pioneering neo-Dodge city in the gently bucolic North Buckinghamshire countryside is absolutely worth saving. So what some people might think of as the most inauthentic of places has, for me, been the most authentic of inspirations. Milton Keynes deals in abstracts and seeming absurdities to the comic interfacing of which I say bring it on. The journalist Stuart Jeffries summarised the town as being invisible yet present philistine yet cultured, laughable yet earnest English yet not. I take issue with the laughable but I'll take the something and the other the ordered and the lawless. Milton Keynes The arch-oxymoron. A place of driverless cars where mini-robots deliver your tea. I can work with that.
0: That was Mary Colson. Next, here's Martin Day on Yeovil.
2: I grew up in Yeovil, a market town tucked into the crinkled fold of the map, where Somerset and Dorset meet. If it was famous for anything, I guess it would be the helicopters it made and that its football pitch sloped sufficiently to allow for a bit of FA Cup giant killing. That football ground is now the main Tesco, and the fact that Thomas Hardy lodged in the town just before writing The Return of the Native was, for a while, marked with a blue plaque on a low wall, perilously close to the public toilets. It's that sort of place. Many of its old buildings were swept away, long before I was born, replaced by knock-off, brutalist concrete slabs. Now that the cattle market has gone, its emphasis remains on manufacturing and the military. I think it's fair to say that no one comes to Yeovil for a holiday. The A303, England's congested highway to the sun, passes four miles to the north and west, and the A30, the old coaching route that linked London and Cornwall, goes straight through the centre. The town is almost equidistant between the holiday resorts of Western Supermare in North Somerset and Weymouth, down on Dorset's Jurassic Coast. For most tourists travelling around the southwest of England, Yeovil is a name on a sign, or a place to be passed through on the way somewhere else. This all sounds a bit negative and patronising, but as I always say, you're only allowed to be mean to a place if you were born there. And I was in 1968, before the new maternity unit had even officially opened. My dad's family have lived in Yeovil, as far back as we can research, and I returned to the town in my late 20s. Both my daughters went to some of the same schools as me, and one was even born in that same maternity unit. I feel like I've got skin in the game. I admit my attitude to this town is sometimes ambivalent, and such reservations are shared quite widely. Once when my wife and I were looking to escape across the county line and into Dorset, the elderly woman who was selling her cottage "'asked us, "'Where do you live at the moment?' "'Yeovil,' we replied. "'Her face fell. "'You have my sympathies,' she said. "'But Yeovil has many things in its favour, "'and most of them extend from its location in the landscape. "'It's not coastal, "'despite the ever-growing squadrons of seagulls "'that execute lazy manoeuvres in the skies overhead, "'but it is close to two magnificent and diverse coastlines. "'It's not beautiful itself,' but it is surrounded by stunning countryside, largely given over to farming. It's not quaint, but it doesn't have the heaviness you often find in a city. This neither one thing nor the other feel I've found oddly stimulating to my imagination and my creativity, but it can also mean you end up being unsure where you belong, emotionally, metaphorically, sometimes even literally. I suppose you only really get a sense of these things in retrospect, And this mixed urban-rural environment underpins my work, even though I am neither a dogged realist nor a nature writer. It's the landscape of my memories and my heritage, my imaginative default, when I read or write of countryside and tranquility and peace. I admit I'm biased. I'm sure I've been to more objectively beautiful places in the world. But I'm not a natural traveller. Why travel hopefully, when all this beauty is almost literally on my doorstep. Growing up I love that because the town is quite hilly from almost any vantage point you can see a splash of green and they still haven't built on all the fields yet. To the north the landscape drops vertiginously to the Somerset levels latticed with ditches and willow trees and barely above sea level. I note in passing the old Somerset weather prediction if you can see Glastonbury Tor, it's raining if you can see it it's going to rain which reminds me to say that Glastonbury and thus its associated musical event aren't far, even if my mum's family, with strict accuracy, persist in calling it the Pilton Pop Festival. As a child, every Sunday, we would travel to my nan's farm, not far from Glastonbury, forcing this bookish boy out into the fields and hay barns and twisting country lanes for at least a few hours. But it is the opposite landscape. The one that sweeps down from my hometown in a broadly southwesterly direction towards the sea, that most inspired me. Yeovil is surrounded by farms and fields of placid Frisian cows, and nearby, soft and golden hamstone was mined for the houses, great and small, that cluster in towns and villages from here to Bath and beyond. Put these facts together: livestock, soft soil, and not forgetting the old cattle market I mentioned and you end up with an almost organic network of holloways in the countryside around the town. As I understand it, these are the routes usually made by farmers, bringing their animals to be sold, or perhaps by pilgrims and everyday travellers. Given the softness of the soil, over centuries the droveway or lane sinks into the ground, creating open top tunnels through the golden earth that are often shaded by trees many feet above you. In Holloway by Robert Macfarlane and Dan Richards, they are compared to creases on the hand, the result of habit, rather than suddenness. Though not unique to this part of Somerset, there are a large number around the parish of East Coker. Only three and a half miles from Yeovil, East Coker's St Michael's Church contains the ashes of T.S. Eliot. Eliot's ancestors lived in this village before they emigrated to the New World, and of course it gives its name to one of the four quartets. And although the landscape Eliot described, its open fields and deep lanes shuttered with branches, lives in my imagination as both a visitable reality and as a deeper lyrical truth, I wasn't particularly aware of the poem until years later, after my own tiny pilgrimage to study humanities in North London. I wrote an essay about Eliot's poem, though the only thing I now recall was struggling to take a broadly postmodern approach one that foregrounded the reaction of the reader over the intention of the author. Perhaps it was appropriate, given the elusive complexity of four quartets. Perhaps I was simply being lazy, and resisting the idea of spending yet another evening in the Polytechnic Library. But that, for me, came later. While studying for my A-levels in Yeovil, another writer, describing a very different landscape, began to dominate the shifting terrain of my imagination. The landscape that greets the traveller journeying into Dorset and heading towards its coast is almost a cliché of a certain sort of Englishness. Quaint villages, folded hills, impassive woodland and pastures so rich and green it's like someone's been inventing new colours while you sleep. The countryside might lack the imposing grandeur of the peaks or the Lake District, but it soothes my soul. I feel like I'm home even though I've never lived there any more than T.S. Eliot ever lived in South Somerset. And if you take the right road, you can end up in Lyme Regis. As far as I'm concerned, it's the Jewel of Dorset. It's mishmash of architectural styles seeming to race down the steep hillside and towards the water. And then there's the Cobb, the great harbour wall that juts out into the sea, irrespective of whether Merrill Streep is there to pensively watch the waves and yes, a brief misery of beach huts. For this is the environment of John Fowles and his French lieutenant's woman, and when we studied the novel as an A-level text, my English teacher claimed to know exactly where Fowles lived. As a town-dwelling working-class lad, the idea that there was a living and famous writer only 25 miles away seemed strangely revelatory. I don't suppose it was an epiphany in the strictest sense of the word, This sudden idea that authors were flesh and blood people and that maybe, if I kept tapping away at my typewriter, one day I might have something published too. But perhaps it helped, though as I said, I'm open to the suggestion that I'm looking back and making connections I never made at the time. I'm not generally fond of the coast. Perhaps too many of my ancestors were devoted to farming the land or maintaining the railways that crisscrossed it. But ever since I read John Fowles' most famous novel, I decided I could make an exception for Lyme. With the land of Elliot's ancestors and Thomas Hardy at your back, you can quote Eliot, in My beginning is my end until your heart sings. You can stand on the cob, echoing the image of the mournful romantic Victorian woman that so inspired John Fowles, and stare out at the unplumbed, salt, estranging sea. In my end is my beginning.
0: That was Martin Day. Next, here's Penny Boxall on Shandy Hall.
3: A few years ago, on a blustery day in mid May, I found myself at an unexpected loose end. I was back in England, briefly, from an extended sojourn in Spain and Italy, which had filled the winter and early spring with the clarity of sunlight only found abroad. I'd attended the wedding of an old friend, and in a few days more, I was due to fly to Switzerland for a month's residency in a chateau. And then, I didn't know. I'd return to Oxford, or I'd start somewhere new. I'd need to find a job somehow. Meanwhile, I was plugging the gap with a few days, at my mother's house in York. I'd intended for years to visit Shandy Hall. Straight after university, I'd worked for a year at Dove Cottage, Wordsworth's house in the Lake District, and I had something of a thing for literary homes that was part nosiness, part longing. It was a longing that often went unfulfilled, even when I was visiting the place itself. I'd sat in Virginia Woolf's shed at Monk's house, gazing at the view she had framed. And felt a sort of yearning to reach her. But her presence was no closer, unreachable under layers of time and air. Gabriel Josipovici would argue that this idea of reaching the author, of closeness to her, is only possible through the work. But there is something about reacting to the same view, the same space, that can feel powerfully intimate. Too often, though, literary homes have been intrusively curated to look authentic, as I found at some of the houses. I didn't have the sense that George Bernard Shaw or Charlotte Bronte had just left the room, but I had the definite suspicion that a wallpaper historian had. I've left many of the literary museums i visited with a feeling, more or less, of having had a near miss, an itch not quite scratched. But I still found myself curious about Shandy Hall, Lawrence Stern's House, with its encouragingly non-corporate website, its live-in curator and its collection of 18th century oddities. It all sounded slightly mad. This was promising. So I rumbled out over the Hambleton Hills on the 31X bus towards Coxwold, got out at the village crossroads and headed up the hill towards the little medieval parsonage. Shandy Hall was a joyous surprise. That thing I hope for, but so seldom encounter. The chimney leant over the garden as if trying to make my acquaintance. The windows were cockeyed, the borders lush and brimming. I was escorted round the house in a small tour group by Patrick Wildgust, the curator. No labels here, no reconstruction. Instead, enthusiasm, life and authenticity. You could see all the joins of the house itself built in 1430, but with many later edits and codicils, a sort of perpetual work in progress. In the flagged and beamed old kitchen, alongside Georgian ceramics, were scattered newly published works of experimental fiction and Patrick's mislaid keys. Stern's study provoked a sort of reverence, a little room under the bedroom he kitted out for his beloved Eliza Draper, who never once visited, But Patrick was keen to remind us that the bookshelves were 20th century. The fireplace was post-stern too. Edits, reshufflings, corrections. The experience of the house was as kinked and non-linear as Tristram Shandy. And so too came to be my own association with it. A chance remark mid-tour, very chance, since I'd never normally dream of saying anything on a tour, normally, in fact, I avoid tours altogether, landed me with a job. They happened to have one going. I could start in a month, I said. Good, said Patrick, before strolling outside to take stock of the latest catch in the garden moth trap. It was perhaps appropriate that, having made the acquaintance of Shandy Hall, I had immediately to leave it again for my residency. Lying on a gold-silk sofa in a chateau in Switzerland... I could hardly believe my surroundings were real, I read Stern's letters to Eliza. The sense of removal, of absent presence, was very strong. I found the tone of the letters unbearable at times. They were full of parallel threads of suffering, his struggle to write, his worsening tuberculosis with its sweats and terrors, and most of all, his obsessive longing for Eliza, who was sailing away from him, back to her marriage and her life in India. Stern would walk over the fields to Byland Abbey. His sense of her so strong that I could feel her edges. I was wrung out too, having returned to England and started work at Shandy Hall, finding my desk in the old kitchen covered in timepieces, clay pipes, and lamento mori. I'd pack up for the day and walk that same path over the fields to the Abbey. I'd passed the previous few months pleasantly drifting spending a few weeks in Seville or Rome on a whim. I hadn't in those months written anything near the amount I thought I would. Days full of galleries and walking and genuine Stendhal syndrome exhaustion left me with too much to write about, which felt just as bad as not having enough. Now I was directionless, and only stern gave me a sense of where I was headed. I skirted the late summer fields and oblivious sheep And as I walked, forgotten things and shadow people accompanied me. But there was something inherently healing about Shandy Hall, too. It seemed to exist outside of time. Patchy mobile reception, cash only in the shop, which was housed in a dim-lit outbuilding. Gentle and diminutive Chris, Patrick's partner, would surface from a lavender hedge or a burst of buddleia in time for coffee, which we took on the lawn. I befriended a girl from the States who was spending the summer at Shandy cataloguing the live moths she and Patrick trapped. We drove up Sutton Bank one hot evening and walked to the mulchy beach at Gormire Lake, which is said variously to have no known source to lead straight to hell and to rise sinisterly up and relieve unwitting geese of their feathers. We lowered ourselves into the weedy murk and swam across thereby proving ourselves by means of this ancient trial, true Yorkshire women. Later, when my friend the moth turn had flown home and her cottage became available, I lived on sight too. The nights drew in. On November evenings I'd walk down the dark lane to the village hall for yoga classes, new for me. And coming back, I'd tilt my head up to the stars, which studded the black page of the night sky like Stern's delicate asterisks in relief. The church bell would toll as I sat in the living room and an owl would ask a question in response. I started taking piano lessons again for the first time since school and on a cheap gumtree keyboard ran up and down the scales I'd never quite been bothered to learn when I was 18. Now I found them soothing, measurable they knew where they were going resolving themselves full of purpose my finger muscles strengthened i finally saw the point of scales as the bark i was practicing began to come more easily and so slowly did writing i drafted a poem sneaking up on it as if to not scare it away the first poem in six months stern wrote to eliza I am happy as a prince at Coxwold, and I wish you could see in how princely a manner I live. Tis a land of plenty. Stern, eccentric, compulsive, full of fun, he really did know how to live. And something of his vibrant spirit still inhabits Shandy Hall, in its inconclusive passageways and funny little loose ends that turn out, finally, to be anything but...
0: That was Penny Boxall. You can find out more about Mary Colson, Martin Day and Penny Boxall on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 378, which was recorded and produced by Yasir Amir. Coming up in episode 379, Lydia Sison speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about childhood in Botswana, the perils of critical theory and obsessive accuracy. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.